Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2272. Today we're going to learn about a gentleman from way back when that led the most amazing life that had a great impact on not only the world of cars, but specifically the world of cars in the UK. So buckle up and be prepared to be inspired. And did I also tell you, I'm in Africa. That's a long way from Gig Harbor, Washington. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm a long way from home. I'm in Kenya, Africa, with a very special guest by the name of Simon Fisher. Simon, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Right. Thanks, Mark. Yes, I'm ready. All right. We're going to have a little bit of fun. Now, before I give you an introduction and we talk about your life and this fabulous book that you've penned, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about Simon Fisher? Oh, <laughs> uh, I've given a lot away already. I used to say when I was asked that question, I used to say, you don't know that I'm a budding author, um, but now, now we do. everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Is this book your first, your first book? No, it's my second. In fact, I've self-published a book on the Elvis Firefly um, in 2007, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to learn about that car because that's another fascinating car that has a special place in your heart and your garage for a long, long time. But today we're going to learn uh, more about you, but also more about this very interesting gentleman that you've written about who is one of these bigger than life characters that maybe many people have not heard of. But you're going to bring his story to light. So let me give you a proper introduction. Simon Fisher grew up in Surrey, England, not far from Tilsbertow. Am I saying that right? Tilsbertow? Til Tilbursto. Tilbursto. Okay. Not far from Tilbursto Hill, scene of some of SF Edges. And we'll learn about him in a little bit. Early competition success. After university, Simon trained in London as a chartered accountant using a 1934 Alvis Firefly as his everyday car. Interesting choice. Most of his career has been in Eastern Africa, mainly in Kenya, where he lives today. He is not, uh, or this has not prevented him from pursuing his passion for motoring. Uh, he has been a member of both the Vintage Sports Car Club and the Alvis Owners Club for over 50 years. Gives away a little bit of his age today, and the uh, Veteran Car Club for almost as long. His passion and ownership of elderly cars in England include two Napiers, while his Alvis Firefly spent many years with him in Nairobi. Today, Simon will share his book, SF Edge, Maker of Motoring History. It's published by our friends at Evro Publishing. They brought us many great books here today. It's a fascinating story about an even more fascinating man by the name of Selwyn Francis Edge. We'll learn more in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsors, so give them a little love. They keep the petrol in our Firefly tank here, and we'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up, but my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collector's Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collector's Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner 
that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, and their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs, and they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. So, Simon, uh, before we get into this book, I want to talk a little bit more about you and the fascinating life you've had with cars. You made a decision to get into old cars way back when, I believe it was the 70s, and you were choosing old cars back then. But I want to hear a little bit more about this passion you have for old cars before we dive into this book. So take us on a little bit of your journey. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, old cars have been an obsession of mine, really, uh, for a long time, more than a hobby. Various factors sort of led to it. I I think my elder brother, my late elder brother, was an influence. Um, He he left home when I was still quite young, because he's 10 years older than me. And he used to come back at weekends, almost in a different old car. Each weekend is is a, a memory I have. And then a couple of sort of schoolmates were were into it as well. Um, one guy, while we were still at school, had a um, an old Morris 8, which I helped him work on. And so, yeah, when I needed a car, I looked for something pre-war, really, and came across an Elvis Firefly, which another friend of mine already had an Elvis Firefly, so I, I knew something about them. And it went from there. Now, that, that first Elvis, the one that I used in London when I was training, um, was not very original. The body had been messed about. And so four years later, I bought another Elvis Firefly, uh, which was original but dismantled. 
and um, took a few years sort of putting that back together again. But and it didn't get didn't get finished drivable until I took it out to to Africa, which is where I was working by that time. So it was shipped out to an Africa to Africa, still in pieces, uh, and I, I finished it off. The upholstery was done in Nairobi. Um, painting was done in Nairobi. Wow! Uh, and I dr- drove it around uh, <laughs> Africa for for many years. This is a really fascinating choice, not only in cars but your life. Uh, Africa? Why Africa? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's one of those things that happens to a lot of people. I um, signed up on a six-month contract just not long after I, I qualified. So I was sort of looking around, what do I do now that I've qualified? And there was this chance to go and work in Ethiopia, as it was, um, for six months. Uh, I stayed there for two and a half years. And by that time, I'd got the bug for living in Africa. So, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been here ever since. Well, it's a fascinating choice in, you know, expatriates uh, that move and visit someplace and then never come home always fascinate me. And Africa is one of those countries that has changed a lot over the decades, of course, and you've seen that in the different places you've lived Mm -hmm. and and not only the strife that many parts of Africa have had to deal with, but the beauty of Africa, the country, the people, all of that no doubt played into components of keeping you there. Would that be accurate, accurate way to say it? Yeah, it is a great place to live. It's um, uh, climate is um, right at the top of the list. I mean, it it is close to the perfect climate. Never gets <laughs> a little different than the UK for sure. Yeah, but as you say, lovely countryside, lovely people. Um, yeah, comfortable life. Fascinating. Well, Selwyn Francis Edge. I learned a lot about him uh, in your book. He's one of these characters to me that was bigger than life. And yet a lot of people, perhaps here in the United States, maybe we're a little more sheltered here than than you Brits. I'd not heard of him. And I started digging into what you've written about him and the importance he played on the automotive world, particularly in the UK, but that spread out across the world. So I want to start with why did you choose him? I kind of know now, but for people that have not heard of SF Edge, uh, why did you choose him? And then we'll take a little dive into his life, why he inspired you, uh, maybe some challenges challenges with putting this book together but let's start with the character why sf yeah it's um well i i got into him sort of got um, to know him through only a napier because he's very um prominent in napier's history uh so that's how i started getting an interest in him um his his physical appearance is quite striking. You know, when you see a photograph of him, you just think this this looks like an interesting guy. So um, I started trying to find out more about him. I read his his book, My Motoring Reminiscences, which is um, written by him in 1934, looking back. But he's stuck in that strictly to motoring reminiscences. It's, it's what it says on the tin sort of. Thing. And, and it was quite frustrating because it said nothing about him as a person. It was just oh, okay. his motoring illnesses. So that really sort of made me want to know more about him. And I, uh, I just started trying to, to find out more. And then, you know, I sort of ended up writing the book because I wanted everyone else to know more about him. I think he, um, he deserved to be better remembered than, than he has been. 
How did he get into the automotive world? Maybe take us through a short, brief walk of his life. What was his early life like? Uh, when was he born? What kind of time period are we looking at here? And then why he got into being such an important part of the automotive growth back when automobiles were pretty darn rare. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, he was born in 1868 in New South Wales, which is part of Australia now. Um, but he, when he was three, his parents brought him to England um, in a sailing boat. I mean, that's a long trip for a three-year-old child. Think about that. Yeah. In that time, I mean, that must have taken a month or more. Um, probably three months, yeah. Three, uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, long trip. But they, they came and they settled in South London. His father was a merchant, a bit vague as to precisely what he was doing. He wasn't very healthy as a child, and he was told his lungs were weak and that he wasn't to play games with other school children. And that sort of, he, he determined that he would get himself fit by cycling. He chose cycling as a, as a way to improve his health. And uh, when he left school, he joined a cycling company as a salesman and then started a career as a racing cyclist and was a very successful racing cyclist in the um, 1890s, really, uh, early early 1890s, and established quite a name for himself. Uh, and then he was spotted by this businessman, Harvey Ducrow, who probably no one's heard of as well, but was a very um, prominent businessman in the early cycling and, and motor industry. In fact, he's the owner of Dunlop Tire Company. Oh, that little uh, company. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he spotted uh, SF, who went to work for him at Dunlop. He became the London manager of, of the Dunlop Tire Company, which then was still making tires just for bicycles. From that, he got an interest. He heard about cars, found out how they worked and, and things, and decided that that was the future. It was no longer cycling, was the future. And he knew this chap called Napier, Montague Napier, who was also a racing cyclist. They, they would race against each other sometimes. Um, and Montague Napier inherited a, a factory from his um, father and didn't know what to do with the factory. So SF said, why don't you make cars? <laughs> These are the things of the future. <laughs> right, yeah. So that's how Napier got into making cars. And, and SF was their salesman. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, so he kind of dove right into this brand new venture of, of cars and so forth. And when you set the stage of this time of the growth of the automobile industry, there were some other big names around at the time. They're probably more well-known. When you start to think of Bentley, Rolls-Royce, uh, these other grand names that still remain today versus maybe that Napier or Alvis or even... even um, uh, Selwyn's name in and of itself. I mean, he was sur surrounded by some pretty amazing people. Yes. I mean, Rolls is the best known. Uh, Rolls Royce, Rolls and, and Royce, um, probably the best known because they're still making cars now. And um, Bentley was much later. I mean, Bentley didn't make a car till 1920, same as Elvis, actually. Um, but there was Herbert Austin, who you might have heard of. The Aus Oak Austin, uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> who originally worked for a company called Wolseley, but then he set up on his own. So he was one of the early pioneers. Um, and then, of course, the, the French were dominant at the, 
before the turn of the century, you know, in the late 19th century, the French were ahead of the rest of the world in, in motor manufacture. And you had the well-known names like Renault and Peugeot, but also Panard Levasseur that is less well-known because oh, it didn't The Panard, yes. I've, I've got a friend who's actually restoring a couple of Panards right now. And I yeah, remember the right, first right. time I went over to look at them, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> you know, just yeah. wild. <laughs> the way the front end opens up and these little motor inside and very unique, unique cars. You know, I like to ask about inspiration, what inspires people. And when you think about Selwyn Francis Edge, what was one of the most inspirational things about him that intrigued you so much? And perhaps it's something you learned as you were diving into writing the book that really stands out for you now that the book is done. Well, he was suddenly driven. I mean, he was, he worked incredibly hard, totally sort of committed uh, to what he was, was doing. Clearly a very successful salesman. It, um, it wasn't easy for him from, uh, from a, fairly modest background, selling very expensive cars, as Napier's were, to very wealthy people. So, and he, he, he sort of um, morphed into this uh, uh, wealthy class of individuals and um, sort of country estates. And he ended up with his own country estate and things. So he, he ended up as a, almost as an aristocrat. But yeah, he, he was just... His sort of obsession um, with, with uh, selling cars, basically, and, and making a success. And then he got into racing and was motor racing as opposed to cycle racing and was very successful at that. But then his his life sort of turned after the First World War. Um, it was less successful and he struggled a bit. And then his final years were a bit sad. So I... Um, yeah, I wanted to sort of find out more about that as well. When you think about um, that period of time and the aristocrats in England and everyone else, the servant classes, and, and you know, it was very divided, if you will. There didn't seem to be much of a middle class occurring back in that time. So I would imagine that would be difficult to crack into that. But it sounds like his racing career brought a charisma about him, fascination from people, and it puts you in a little bit of a very rarefied elite, even like race car drivers today are put into so that these these upper class people that had the money to buy what he wanted probably looked at him in a different light than being just a salesman would that be fair yeah it's it's difficult to tell i don't think he was ever really treated as an equal by by his upper class customers of course um so in that sense yeah he was just a salesman uh but yeah, he tried pretty hard. Um, to, Sounds like to, to get in with, with them. Yeah, hardworking guy. He was way ahead of his time, and I, I should have made this point in the book. Really, way ahead of his time as a as a blogger, as a social media. Um, oh, really? Guy. But it, in those days, his social media was the correspondence pages of the motoring magazines. Uh, they were weekly magazines, like the Auto Car, and. He just had a letter. He wrote a letter to them, sort of almost every week, so that there was always a letter from him in the magazines. And it was at that time was the equivalent of a blog. I think very smart guy to remain in people's forefront, but it also added credibility to his yes. uh, his awareness of automobiles. And of course, if we're all buying a car from somebody, we want them to know 
more than we do. Nowadays, it seems like the consumer knows more than the salespeople because of all the information. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, an old-fashioned uh, first vlogger, blogger. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> I like that. When you think yeah. about challenges, and I like to ask people about challenges, in putting this book together, what was your biggest challenge in compiling information about a man that so far back in time, um, what was that big challenge with putting the book together? Well, I think with any book like that, it's, or any author, you you just you gather all this information from different sources, um, and you've got to try and piece it together as a as a continuous sequence story sort of thing. I mean, sure. um, and I was very conscious that I wanted it to be a story, not just a a collection of facts, and and that was the challenge, I, I think, and yeah. I've heard this from many authors. When you have all this information, how do you put together in a cohesive story, but also making sure it's accurate, of course, and you're dealing with a lot of historical things. Were his writings that that he did every week, did that play a part in what you put together? Was that helpful? Yes, I was very lucky that um, he himself kept press cuttings. He, In fact, he paid a company to um, collect press cuttings of any mention of him in the press. And those have survived, and they're, they're huge, great volumes. I mean, they would be a couple of yards long if you put them all together. <laughs> and they're, they're in the library of the Veteran Car Club in, in Great Britain. How cool. Well, that had to help quite a bit. So I spent many hours going through those, and it was very helpful. You know, you could go into newspaper libraries or something instead, but this was all in one place. <laughs> but it was... On the other hand, it was quite overwhelming because we just had this mass of press cuttings. Yeah. And how does one sort of collect little bits of information here and there uh, and make it into a, a book? Yeah. Wow. So when you think about bucket list looking forward, you've written your first book. Now your second book. Is there another one in the future? Uh, not at the moment, but I'll see how it goes. It, it's um, What's putting me off is it would... I would find it very difficult to to write one as uh, as interesting as the one on uh, SF. Oh, um, but there's a guy that's mentioned in the in the SF book, Charles Jarrett. He he deserves uh, a full biography as well. So maybe that's something I could work on. There you go. Well, we'll have to talk to our friends at Evro. Uh, they put out some fantastic <laughs> books, so there you go. That might be the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about a special vehicle in your life, and it has to be the Alvis Firefly that I mentioned in your introduction, and you brought this up. I'm assuming that's probably one of the most special vehicles because you've kept this car longer than most people have been alive, it seems like. Would that be the <laughs> Would that be the car? I know that we communicated before we got together today, and you also talked about some other wonderful cars that you've had, and we can get into those if you like. But but the Firefly, I mean, that's a part of you. Yeah, it's. I think it's a case of first love. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the first proper car that I I owned, um, and yeah, I I got to know it so well. You know, having. I, taken the engine apart and, and put it back together again a couple of times. Uh, and, you know, I've driven long distances and had complete sort of faith in it, it getting me to the destination. So, and I just couldn't bring myself to sell it. It's uh, <laughs> part of your, what year is that vehicle? That's 1934. 34. Wow. So, yeah. you know, when I was, um, I think I was 15 
And my dad's first collector car when I was five years old was a 49 MGTC mm. and here in the United States, which is pretty rare to see on the roads at that time, early 60s. But I just fell in love with it. And I got this idea that I wanted to have one of those. And we found one in a garage, but it was all in parts and boxes. And I was all excited, but I didn't have the bravery, I believe, that you had at that point in your life. And I looked at this and my dad looked at me and he said, are you sure about, you know, you want a car you can drive to the beach and go surfing and take your friends. This is a different deal here. Um, And my dad did not have a lot of uh, mechanical background, so he wasn't going to be able to be much help uh, to me. And I I ended up passing on that car, but here I am talking about it again Uh, today. That was a long time ago. Uh, Just uh, kind of wondering why, but I I have to take my hat off to you for uh, venturing into this and then sticking with it and getting to know that car the way that you've gotten to know it. Um, If you were to describe to our listeners today one thing about your Alvis Firefly, a characteristic or maybe personified into taking a car into a kind of personality, what would it be about that car for you? Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's difficult. I mean, it has some oddities, things that people find very odd. It has a free selector gearbox, which is quite rare uh-huh. um, and complicated. And it has the accelerator pedal in the middle of the three pedals. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Elvis is, a, is another uh, famous name. Um, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of researching Elvis history as as well. Um, so it's it's a significant brand. But in a way, the the Firefly was you could say it's a sort of the poor relation of Elvis cars. Elvis made some really splendid six cylinder, hundred mile an hour cars before wow. the Second World War. Whoa! Um, so the Firefly was the sort of um, yeah. <laughs> The, the forgotten child. <laughs> oh, I love the name. Uh, sorry? I love the name Firefly because oh, yeah, yeah. who doesn't love yeah. a Firefly? The concept of a Firefly darting about, capturing your attention. Would that be a good way to personify this vehicle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. it, ha- it has a Firefly as a mascot, a, a chrome-plated Firefly nice. <laughs> sitting off on the radiator. Yeah. Nice. I love it. So I'm going to be your car psychologist today. I play a little game with all my guests. I'm going to crawl into your head a little bit here, Simon. Uh, if you were reincarnated uh-huh. as a vehicle, now this isn't what you want to be. This is your personality as some type of a vehicle. What would you be? But more importantly, why? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never thought of that one before. I've, um, Most people it's haven't. Like, it's like, <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I think perhaps a Bentley actually would. Uh... A be- okay, I like that. And I, I know in our, our pre-show talks and communications, uh, there was a Bentley in your life in the past, I yes. believe, that uh, I know you're a little sad you let go. I think my last correspondence to you was, yeah, we all have those gals that we let go that we maybe wish that we hadn't. Um, yeah. why, why a Bentley? I mean, that is a, that is a pretty significant car. Most everybody in the car world knows what Bentleys are. There's fascinating history about Bentley, of course, but why do you identify with the Bentley so much? I think it's it's a serious motor car. You know, it was made to, <laughs> um, to be driven fast in sporting events. Um, and it's a, yeah, no holds barred sports car of its time. Um, but it's also sort of big and muscly uh, as well, bold, 
<laughs> Bold. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I love it. It's kind of the uh, racing cousin of the Rolls Royce, you know, uh, yes. not afraid to get dirty and get out there and, and do some stuff. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I mean, Bugatti described them as the fastest lorries in Europe <laughs> but because they were <laughs> they were big, tough cars, but they went fast. Yeah. Right. Well, a lot of the chassis and so forth were converted and used as truck chassis and transportation. I know, like Rolls-Royce, a lot ended up going off to war and being used yeah. as, as work beasts underneath. And you think about that now and you go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that that happened. But, you know, different times. Yeah. Fascinating. So obviously, we always share a book here today. This book, SF Edge, Maker of Motoring History, uh, authored by our guest today, Simon Fisher. I'll put links to how you can get your hands on a copy. And I encourage you, if you love automotive history, this is something that should be in your library. Uh, fascinating story about a fascinating person. And Simon, you did a spectacular job. And is your, your first book still available? Is it still out there for sale? Uh, yes, it is. You, you'd have to buy it from the Elvis Owner Club. That's the only... Okay. Okay. Because I self-published it and it was always um, on sale through the Elvis Owner Club in the UK. Okay, I'll put a link if to you, that. If you Google it, you'll, you'll find it. Well, I'll put a link to that on Simon's show notes page on the Cars yeah! website. So those of you who want to add that to your library uh, can get your hands on that and find it. But of course, the books by Evro are available all over the world, depending on where you are. Amazon is a great source to get your hands on uh, on that book. So I'm going to enable you to go on the ultimate drive. This is kind of silly because you've been on many ultimate drives. Uh, you've you've taken this passion you have for old cars and really wrapped your life around it with all these wonderful drives. But today I'm going to provide you with any car in the world. Park it in your garage. Don't worry about the cost. I'm going to pay for this whole deal. You can take it for a drive anywhere in the world. And here's the key. You can take anybody with you, even somebody who's no longer with us, somebody from the past, which opens up a world of opportunity of driving companionship and stories and, and everything that would go with that. So what does the ultimate drive look like for a guy who's been on many ultimate drives? That would have to be a Napier. Okay. Would, um, <laughs> how about the Napier on which um, SF Edge won the Gordon Bennett trophy? Oh, okay. And would you would you go with, with SF? I would love to be able to drive that, that car. Well, um, and if I could go with, with SF, or actually with Montague Napier. I, I find Montague Napier a fascinating character. I'll bet. As well. I think, um, yeah, I think I might choose him as a companion. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Well, I see a big grin on your face, so I think that... Uh, I think you answered that one the way that would be would be pretty fun. You know, this book is fascinating, and I'm really grateful that you spent some time with me today to share what you put together for us. And, and you've really captured a piece of automotive history that a lot of us maybe have not known about, and now we will. Before I let you go today, Simon, could you leave us with maybe uh, words of inspiration, uh, maybe a quote or something that has meaning for you when it comes to the world of automobiles and life? Um, there's a quote in the book by Charles Jarrett about how motoring has changed the world. It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's just a part of our, our lives. And you look back and, you know, you know, into the 19th century and they, they weren't there. Um, they, they've really become a, a, a very significant part of our, our life. Um, more than, I mean, you could compare it, I suppose, with the internet and things like that. But in an earlier age, they really changed the world. One of the things that I always thought was fascinating about automobiles is the fact that not only did they change the way that we interact and the way that we can 
go out there and see more things. But they brought the world to us as well when you think about transportation and goods and things that used to not be able to get fresh fruit, let's say, where you lived in certain parts of the world. And transportation today, which includes, of course, ships and airplanes uh, and so forth, but also trucks, lorries and so forth. Um, I can sit down this morning and eat a bowl of berries that came from Chile just last week. And that's because of mm-hmm. transportation and the fact that these things can all be put together, all the goods and services and, and trade and all of that. So uh, you're right. The automobile did a wonderful thing. I'll grab that quote by uh, Charles out of the book and put it on your show notes page. It's fascinating. I also want to do a shout out. Thank you to our mutual friend, Judy Stropus. Judy brings some fascinating people here to Cars. Yeah. So Judy, once again, uh, you hit the ball out of the park with Simon Fisher here. So thank you very much. And uh, again, I'll put a link to this book. You got to put this on your library shelf. I think all you listeners are going to love it. Simon, hey, thanks for spending a little bit of time with me today and sharing this new book. I hope there's another one uh, in your uh, computer now. I guess we don't really write stories anymore. We keystroke them uh, in the future. (laughs) And if there is, you can come back and visit and share that with us. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I hope I see you somewhere down the road. Okay, thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great fun. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.